0: Welcome to My Life Supply, Episode Four Hundred and Eighty Five. This program is dedicated by Paula and Jonathan Weiss in honor of their wedding anniversary. To many more years of health and happiness. We've entered into the joyous month of Adar the first of Adar, first of two Adars, this year being a leap year, and as the Talmud tells us, As we enter into the month of Adar, we increase in joy. So in this case, we have two months of Adar, which is double amount of joy. And according to the rule of Milim that we always have to ascend in all matters of goodness and holiness and kedusha, that we increase every day more joy. We know we're living in difficult times. There's a war going on in Israel. Lives have been lost. Atrocities have been perpetrated. There are many things that can give us cause for not having so much joy, actually being sad. And yet, we're still told marben b'simcha. As we discussed in previous programs, because simcha doesn't mean frivolous joy. It doesn't mean a joy of denial, of escapism, joy of knowing that we're here fulfilling God's purpose in the world. Sometimes that purpose is in a revealed way positive, sometimes it goes through challenges. But the joy is always necessary. So even when you're fighting a battle, there's also an element of joy, of positivity, of confidence, of hope, knowing that you're fighting the right cause, knowing that you will prevail. So all that increases in joy. As a matter of fact, you need joy even more in difficult times when then and then easy times so to speak because it gives us strength the opposite would be demoralizing would be weakening and we know we go with the hand of god we know we go with the strength of hashem and we can get through everything as jews have demonstrated throughout history that we will prevail obviously we pray and we hope that it should be with the least amount of pain with the least amount of suffering with the least amount of, of loss but we will prevail. We are fighting a war that firstly protects innocent men, women, and children against enemies that have demonstrated themselves as being worse than savages. Secondly, this is Eretz Yisrael, land, the promised land that Hashem watches over, in addition to everywhere, where God never, sl- the protector of Israel never sleeps and never slumbers, especially in Eretz Yisrael. So this is both our that uh, this program, and all our t- prayers, and our studies, and our additional tzedakah, all the three pillars upon which the world stands, should help the spiritual side of the war, that helps the, the physical side, but also to know that we have absolute confidence that we shall prevail. We just have to do what we have to do and not feel that we have to respond to the pressures of others, whether it's their anti-Semitic feelings or in general their own diplomatic and political um, agendas. This is a clearly defensive war and just on a very basic level, I think it's all of us should understand something that is so, to me at least, is so crystal clear. I talk about we all cry for, for any human being being lost, whether Jew or not Jew, anyone being killed in a war. But there are ways that ceasefires are implemented. You want to ceasefire? Very straightforward. Let's just follow the rule of history. Ceasefire is when the enemy who's attacked you surrenders unconditionally, completely, returns all the hostages, eliminates from their constitution and from their words the call for the annihilation and destruction of Jews in Israel, and proves it in actions. That's it, you get a ceasefire. It's so ludicrous, insanity, to even be talking, no ceasefire because there's human beings being killed, civilians. You want to stop those civilians being killed? Very simple, surrender. Why is there no such call? For the life of me, I cannot understand. The focus is completely in a distorted way. During World War II, the war ends by you, the enemy unconditionally surrendering. You don't say because civilians are being killed in Germany and Japan, that's why let's have a ceasefire. They're being killed because you declared war against Israel and you not only declared, you behaved in ways that are not just war, completely inhumanity, the atrocities perpetrated, the brutality, etc. So there's one way to end the war. That should be the only focus and the only headline. I'm saying it because it's so infuriating. We are in supplied. applied. But chassidus applied means applying tater clarity and chassidus clarity to life. And this is a life situation. So I felt I should just open up with this very straightforward way to, to end this war very quickly. Just as it began, you reverse the whole process. Whatever you did, we're not even getting to paying your dues for what you per- perpetrated on what is called October 7th now, said as Simcha Stata. But we're talking about ending it now? Total unconditional surrender, return of the hostages, eliminating any call for war, stop declaring war in Israel. Simple as that. All of us, anyone with mo'yegh b'kat kade, as they say, with a brain in their head, half a brain in their head, should declare this very clearly, and everything else is secondary, not even secondary. Even if there were the claim that there's a cause that's being represented, and Israel has oppressed Palestinians, fine, so sit down and talk about it. There are ways to deal with it. But we're talking about ending a war right now. Okay. So that's just an opening statement All the time, especially, as I said, in the month of Adr, we go with a full fortitude and confidence and strength, with an inner joy. And joy, in this case, is the forging ahead with absolute hope, faith and trust in God, that we shall prevail, we will prevail, and all in a joyous way, in a revealed way. So this is a general lesson from this time, lessons from Adr. being we have different um, elements in time. So what does this week's Torah portion and time period teach us today? So we started with the time period of Oden. But let's talk a little more details about Oden, lessons from Oden. Someone asked the question, what are some things that Rebbe did during Oden to increase in joy that we can emulate today? Very good question. I was thinking about actions. I mean, in words, when other would come, whether it was one other or a leap year and Ashana as two others, this became a central focus. Mashiach Nishnas Ademarim Besimcha and the crease of joy. And could Hashem Yesharim Mesam starts with the, the joy that comes through Torah mitzvahs, but also simple joy like celebrating and dancing. That became the custom in 770 and in other places that special dancing going on every day and month of Adar, at the encouragement of the Reb. The Rebbe himself, as I said, was encouraged it. I'm thinking if there are any specific things he said to do. I do remember when he spoke at the rallies for the children, he was obviously also encouraged that everything be done with simcha. And there was clearly more simcha in the singing and the dancing. But I don't know if there was any particular campaigns of, of, of simcha. besides, of course, gathering, as I said, children together, the chlal gathering together, gatherings which are always connected to simcha. But if there's something that somebody has in mind that you remember that Ebba actually implemented in the month of Adr, I'd love to hear about it. Now, of course, there's the halachas, that if you're dealing with a court case, the month of Adr is an opportune time, an auspicious time for that. body Bari Mazla, the Mazla viden is a healthier, stronger in this month for all the reasons put him. You know, Homan, of course, made the mistake. He thought it was a bad month because it was the passing of, of Moshe and month of Odr, the Zayn Little did he know that was also his birth. But are there any specific things that the Rebbe implemented? Like we know, for example, in the three weeks, that Rebbe implemented the learning of the laws of Beis Amikdosh, both in Tere Shabik and Tere Shabapen and Rambam, doing Siyumim, And other things that the Rebbe implemented. If there's things specifically in the month of Adar, please, as partners, share with me and I will share it with the public. Thank God we still have quite a few weeks in this first Adar and then the second Adar and increasing in joy. But definitely the emphasis on Simcha and bringing out the inner Simcha that is there within each each of our souls and demonstrating it in a revealed way, which is the whole nature of Simcha, which is to express it, to express it. What is the significance of 60 days of other? So as I mentioned, it's double, this year. Double is not just in quantity, it's also quality. And you actually have 60 days to increase each day. Now we know that 60 days is a result of a Shonu Uberis, a leap year, which is a result actually of a negative thing. The diminishment of the moon, which caused a discrepancy between the lunar calendar and the solar calendar. In order to reconcile that, Every seven years and nine, every nineteen years, seven times in nineteen years, seven years among every nineteen years, there's a leap year to reconcile the one eleven and a half, approximately, days of deficit between the three hundred and sixty-five solar year, three hundred sixty-five day solar year, and the three hundred fifty-four lunar year. But when we complement that, we fill in and, uh, and uh, want, to, uh, co- uh, want to compensate for a deficit, we always add more. So indeed, the extra month, and especially a month of joy, is an addition that comes from a deficit. So asked, did the Rebbe once compare the 60 days of Adar in a leap year to the idea of a small amount of tray falling into a pot of kosher food being bottled b'shishim? Can Rabbi Jacobson please expound on this? Thank you. So there's a din, there's a concept in halacha that when, you know, kosher means you don't meet milk and meat, God forbid, but if a very small minute amount of meat fell into a pot of milk, so generally it would make a a non-kosher. But there's a concept in halacha called bitl, if it's so small, one sixtieth. so there's bitl b'shishim, there's bitl b'meya, there's many levels of bitl. So the Rebbe did indeed, I think it was, uh, I'm not sure what year it was, probably in Memches or Memtes, maybe in those years, where the Rebbe did explain, which means that even if there's some negative thing, but it's Batl in the Shishim Yeim, which is not just 30 days, 60 days. So the joy and the positivity and the positive energy of other overrides even a negative thing. That's the context, which of course is very appropriate now, that even when we have something negative, not just that it's ignored. It's bottle due to the great simcha and joy that comes out of it, like you see. We see the positivity, the positive energy, the unity, the tzedakah, the teira, the tefillah that has come out and has emerged from this challenge in many ways is overridden. Not that it minimizes or diminishes, but it demonstrates the positive thing, the positive power. And we have an example for it. The Rebbe brings the example in a number of places. The concept of the Haftedah. Why do we say Haftedah? When we read the Pasha, why do we have to say Haftedah? That is usually the similar theme to that week's chapter, or if it's a certain time of the year, the, the theme of that time of the year. So the Haftedah came about as a result of exedra, a negative thing. The Romans decreed that Jews shouldn't be allowed to read Teeter in public. So they were not allowed to read Satera. They couldn't read it, but the Jews were smart. They, they what does terah mean? So they interpret it in a very narrow sense. should Ship Sab, meaning Khamesha But they didn't they didn't prohibit the reading of Tanakh, or Nach, I should say. So that's when they established the they found something to read that week instead of what the Parsha. The theme of the so you could think once the Gzeda was over, the decree was over, okay, we're back to reading the pasha. But by Yiddishkeit and Alakusa and Gedusha, the there's no such thing as taking away. You added something, good, you always leave it. So today we read the even though it was it was based on and came out of a result of a decree. But now once we've corrected so now we have more Gdusha, more reading, we read the Pasha. From Chumash, and then we read the, the associated haftarah, with it. all demonstrating how negative things end up becoming a springboard, a catalyst for so much more kedusha. And then Yisr and Minacheshach is a deeper light and a deeper joy when it comes from a negative place. This month of jo- of other is V'napachu. Why is it so much joy? Because it was transformed from day from Yogen, from a day of uh, mourning and possible grief. The month Yogan the Simcha, a would transform transformation from darkness to light, likesa of simcha, the then the joy is so much stronger. Not just in the head not just in the feeling of the gavra of the person, but the very joy itself. Because it transforms a negative situation into a positive one. And we see Simcha that joy has the power to break through all boundaries. The power of transformation, and sixty days is of of joy, only doubles it in quantity and in quality. What can we learn from other about the war that began on Shmini So, someone wrote, "It's taught that Haman made a big mistake by choosing other for his plot, thinking it is a bad lucky day, a bad luck day." because Moshe passed away on the 7th of other, but he didn't realize it's really a good luck day because it's also Moshe's birthday, correct, as the Gemara says. And that's why he he didn't start, Pasha Shekhalim, of Haman. Haman wrote through Shekel. He threw a lot, and he established Shkolim. He threw lots, and then what Shekhalim wanted to buy, the genocide the of all the Jews, so we start Parshat Shkolem, we read Parshat Shkolem, the Shabbos, before other. Or it's Shkodesh to proceed our Shkolem as a redemption before, the, basically the healing, before the, the cure, before the, before the disease or the illness. <coughs> Is it possible, this person writes, that the Hamas terrorists made a similar mistake by choosing October 7th because it's Vladimir Putin's birthday? And like him or not, Putin has proven to be a strong leader that doesn't take any nonsense from Muslim terrorists, as he ordered the Russian army to help annihilate ISIS. Is this perhaps a lesson that Israel and Russia should make a pact to work together to destroy the Hamas terrorists? Well, let's begin with where we should begin. Before Putin's birthday, Lahavdul, Ushmini had said, and Simchristed, and in this law. I think the first thing to say is yes, Hamas made a mistake. They chose, they thought, a vulnerable day when Nidna are celebrating, just like 50 years earlier, the, the Arab countries chose Yom Kippur when the Jews had their guard down. Little did they know that this is the day of the, that celebrates the indestructibility of the Jewish people. Yom Kippur, that Salachti even after a tremendous Chet, like the terrible Chet Egel. And when we celebrate the Lucha of, of the second tablets of Yom Kippur. And so it's a celebration of indestructibility that nothing can be destroyed. The Eden, God is unchangeable, immutable. And so the Jewish people connected to him cannot be ever destroyed, God forbid, because of their connection. And the proof is because even when something was broken, their promise, their commitment by building the golden calf, and the tablets were broken. And yet, they were able to find deeper strength. Again, from the darkness came even greater light. And that's the day when the the, the attack of October 7th was. So yes, terrible things happened that day, but ultimately it'll be the source of our victory, and even a greater victory, like it's always been, that when all this fades into the past, what we'll remember is the eternity the perpetuation of Am So that's what I would begin with. As far as Putin goes, his birthday. Look, if you think it's a strategy, I don't know if you trust the guy, not just the guy, he'll do things for his own agenda. So I don't want to get into whether Israel should make an alliance now with Russia. I don't know if that's exactly going to work. But the point I'm making, absolutely. And I wouldn't compare Moshe Rabbeinu to Putin, Havdil, Moshe Rabbeinu's birthday in the month of Adar. I would compare it more, as I said, October 7th being Simchastede, which of course is also Moshe Rabbeinu's day. Taylor Shalom, he actually calls it Simchastede, because the day when Moshe, Moshe's Simchastede, when Moshe came with the Luchas and Yom Kippur, and then comes Simchastede, right in the beginning of Taylor Shalom. That Moshe definitely said Lachaimah, Simchastede. That's what he says there. Okay. Let's move on. Being that this week is also Purim Cotton, so Purim Cotton comes. Is, why is it called Purim Cotton? Simple technical reason, because when there's two others, you cannot put him twice. So the question of the Gemara is: When is when do we celebrate Purim? You'd think Purim in Adershin, the, because the other Shani is the additional month. Except the Gemara says no, mismagula lagula. We celebrate Purim in second month, so to be associated. To go directly from other into Nisan, Mismach, Smichus, the connection, in an uninterrupted way, consecutively from other to Nisim. but to completely ignore it, we don't, God forbid. So we call it Purim Cotton, and there are customs connected to that day, calling not saying and other things, but Purim Cotton. But it's an interesting name, Cotton. Why Cotton? So I discussed this a number of years ago on this program, and I'll give you the reference in episode 104. I should also mention 249 and 392. So These, or these are the archives that you can find at chesidasupply.com, a previous episode. So I'm not going to go through all the details. You can look it up easily there. It's an interesting letter from the Rebbe that I elaborated on. Cotton is a unique name. It could have said many different ways to call it. Some actually call Purim, Purim godel. Cotton and gadol. You can call it purim Rishon, like we say, Sheni. So there's purim edition. And there are different names that are used for it, but cotton symbolizes, that Rebbe says there, the Gemara in Chulin that talks about Yaakovua cotton. Lavona is the Moira cotton. That Idna compared to the moon, because cotton represents Bittl. We talked before about the diminishment of the moon. So on one hand, it seems like a negative thing. It was diminished smaller than the Moira Godel. But on the other hand, the moon, Aishas Khaila by the Malchus, Leslumagamaklum reflects the bitl that allows it to receive from keser, as Sidis explains, from the highest levels. So Yaakov David the Gemara elaborates on the concept of Katnus as bitl that allows us to experience something far greater, like we say. That when we suspend ourselves, we allow ourselves to receive something far greater. So cotton represents a level of bitl. So Purim, obviously, with all the halachas we celebrate in the second Mis Magul gula. But Purim cotton reminds us of the Indian of cotton. It also has association with children. We know Purim connected to children. And indeed, Purim cotton the Rebbe, a number of times, spoke to the children and also cited the maim, the famous Maimon of the Kibla Yehudim that was set, put him, in, in Tofresh Pezai in 1927 in Moscow. and It was very dangerous times, and the Fridika Rebbe spoke strongly about that. The way to address the, the exodus, the decrees against the Jewish people, is to do what Mordechai did, gathering the young Jewish children, the Kitanim and the Kitanes, the young children. Because cotton has the quality that is able to reach far deeper levels, as we discussed. So the lesson from Purim cotton is a very straightforward lesson in that sense. And more elaboration as I referred to the previous episodes where I discussed this. Okay, this week is also Parsha Tetzava. Now we know Parsha Tetzava is after Moshe's birth, it's only Parsha that doesn't mention Moshe's name. And the this svarim this talk about it because it's the week that usually associates with the month, with the birthday, the time when the birthday of Moshe. But also his yard site. Since he passed away, so you don't mention his name. It also symbolizes the Machenin HaMasifracha, Moshe Rabbeinu, when he was on the mountain praying for the Eden after the Chet Eagle, and ultimately gaining forgiveness with the second tablets and then the celebration on Simchas Teireh, Shemini Yatserah Simchas he said, Mukheni na erase my name from the safer. So as a zeikrit the for the him say, there's a parasha that doesn't mention his name. Here too you see a cotton, an element of bitl. You don't see Moshe's name. And yet it says, the atta The atta, the atmis of Mesha. Etzim, the lay slam is labishumes with labishum kats, as we say about the Ibishan and dem Demulabed. So the Rebbe elaborates that in this pasha we find not the gili of Moshe as his name, but the Atta, the Etzim of Moshe. That's higher than a name. So on one hand, you think, one second, the name is not there for a negative reason. No, you find a deeper connection. Because in cotton, you find, great, like it says, the Fridika Rebbe brings from the name of the Baal Shemta, the pshittus of ish pashat, the simplicity of a simple person, the simplicity of a child, is a, it brings down, is connected to pshittus atmos simplicity that's higher than all the Gileadim. So lower than Gileadim, rooted in higher than Gileadim. Because when you have a tzir, you have a structure, and you have a beautiful um, ornaments and all the different uh, fanfare, so you can experience the divine expression. But if you want the divine essence, it's when you suspend it all. It's silence, like the second Lucas In silence, we gain and we experience something far higher than etzim. So all this is into to in Purim cotton, and this time of the year in Atat Tetzava. In Atat Tetzava itself, it begins right away with the Shem and Zayizach, with the, the mitzvah of lighting the Meneidah, the, which we've talked about in the past. There are two Kosses Lamoir, as the Rebbe in the famous sikh of of Tav Mem Aleph, Atat Tetzava. Tav which was the last Maimer the Rebbe actually edited and handed out um, the last moment the Rebbe handed out, I should say, in Tov Noon Nun bays. So he talks about Kosis Lamoyer, also an element of Bitl. Kosis Lamoyer means it's crushed. The olives are crushed to produce oil. So that crushing brings out the moyer, the etzem, the Atta. But later in the chapter, we talk also about the Big De Kahuna. So the main, main Mishkin, the main structure of the temple and its containers, its kalim, its vessels, the Onn, the Meneda, the Shulchan are talked about, and also the structure are talked about in Pasha Teruma. In Pasha Tetzava, as the Rebbe explains in a number of places, you talk about the deeper elements in the in The, the Va'ata, the Atzmias, Shem lamoyer, and also Big day Kahuna, the Kovadil Teferas, the garments of the Kohayani. So even though the main Aved of the kohanim was their service, their service, whether it's lighting the meneda or bringing their offerings, or the k'teris and other things they did, the shulchan. But they had to wear begadim. Begadim, you'd think, is secondary. No, but that's why in Ashter we learn what lekover dileteferes. So, question was asked: What were the what, um, what lessons do we learn from the uniforms the Kohanim wore while serving in the temple? Does dressing a certain way make the atmosphere more conducive to being in harmony? With spiritual energy. And the answer is absolutely yes. But it's the covadil teferes. In other words, it's adding an element. It's like when we say Dida Na, a beautiful home, Machiva Daitl Shalodam, expands the mind of a person. The Rebbe's famous Sikh about Khabbey Shvat, Chaya Mushka, her name, the Rebbe's name. That she added vitality, a mushka, a beautiful aroma. So you could have the basics of a home, but it's not beautiful home. The Koval Teferis adds, they didn't just serve in the temple, they served with a beauty. Everything was done as the Rambam Paskins to the utmost. In Gedushi, you don't just do the minimal. In Kain and Hevel, Hevel brought an offering that was of quality, not just a minimal offering. So you always do the best. So the Koval Teferis represents the beauty. And indeed, you see the fact, a beautiful home expands the mind. That's why you find Zekeli Van Veyu. Make sure the mezuzah is a mezuzah, no, a beautiful mezuzah, a beautiful sefer tera, beautiful svarim. So even though it's only external, but we're talking about internal, for sure it's beautiful. But the internal also should express itself in a beautiful outside. So it says, the Rebbe says, Shekera chen yefi kim yishi yiris shem as the Rebbe explains, means if it's only chen and yefi on its own, it's empty, hollow, but if there's a beauty within, there's the Ishi Yiddish Hashem, then we also have the concept of the imas, the matriarchs, what Yifas Teyad, Yifas Mada. We talk about their beauty, not just the internal beauty, also external beauty. Because the internal and the external, Techei is seamless. As a matter of fact, in Hebrew, you have the word ponim, face. The word for face, which means in English, the face of it, the surface of it, in Hebrew, it's also panemius It's also the inner. The inner and the outer are all seamlessly one. In English, you say the surface, the outer is more superficial, the panim, the 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 ponim, the outside, but it's not necessarily panimius. But in Hebrew, ponim and panemius go hand in hand. So when they served in that way, to you have the zvochim where. He was riding on, where, where, Eid, where the next, the future emperor of Rome was riding on a horse, and he saw Eid, and he saw his gatel fall down, I think it was. And he got over the horse and went over to him and said, your are is k'in of v'gei k'adosh. Eid is v'gei The gatel should be positioned in the right place for the ultimate respect, for the ultimate beauty. So there's a lot to be said about external that is external, but the external reflects, obviously, the inner. Not just the external without the internal. Okay. Since we're already on the parshas, a few questions. I just want to deal with the last few Pashas that are also connected. Obviously, can it follows Pasha Truma. So in Truma, we spoke already about the Mishkan and its role and its chiddush, the, the 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 contribution that the Mishkan, the temple had. So one of the questions asked that we we're following up on. is the issue of Truma, as Someone asked, what were the Khrub the, the cherubim, the Shrubim, the Cherubs, the Cherubim and the Ark, and what do they represent? So the Ark, of course the Arna Kedish, had on top of it the snake Kruvim. Kruvim there's different explanations of what they look like, but the shute place places Kruv Kruvechod were were in the face of children, a little boy and a little girl. So it represents the Yichud of Kushabricha and Shinta. But not just, but in the form of cotton. Zair Ampin, small face. So children represent Pshitis, We spoke about simplicity. Male and female represent Zohar Nekeva, Baru Esam. God created male and female, be and Makabel. And together, when they faced each other, we know that's when the Kedusha, that's when there was the Esam, the Tzene Shalmokim, that we were, God felt close to us. So the Kruvim represented the connection, because what happened by the Arden and the Kapiris and Beishnei Bad the Oden, that's when Hashem spoke to Meshe Rabbeinu. That's from where Hashem spoke to Meshe So essentially it's an interface between heaven and earth, an interface between Mashpi and Makabu, between Tsar and Malchus, in the language of Chesidus, the Altar Rebbe writes. So it expresses itself in the physical face of, a, of children, Kruvim. There's other explanations, there's beautiful sikhs from the Rebbe and the the sikhs on this. You can look it up through the index. But that's briefly so when we say that the Mishkan was a place where the Adati Lachoshamah, Hashem said, This is the place I will meet with you. So the Kruvim capture that type of meeting, two faces looking at each other. Even when the temple was destroyed, God forbid, it says the Kruvim were facing one another. When the Babylonians entered, You'd think, no, that was a time of khurb. But the deepest connection is sometimes experienced because Hashem took out his wrath, al aitzim al on the building, but not on the idm. So the deepest love is sometimes dafka in the time of distance. Again, from the darkness comes deeper light. That's why right, it's a mitzvah when husband and wife separate, meaning the husband's going off, Halakh ma'il al that they be intimate with each other. The abrishta before the long the Kruvim were facing one another, a symbol of that intimacy and that intimate connection. I will be with you under all circumstances. Even though in Giluyim, the Baal, in this case, the Ebris, the Shechina, is going to be, be Galusa, as the Eden would be in Galus, but the connection remains even deeper because that's when you see it most in times of distance. In times of darkness, you see how close people are. That despite the darkness, they still remain close and even closer than ever before. Okay, and finally, two thoughts from Parsha Mishpatim, and like um, so, someone asked the question: the title mentions four guardians. Yeah, the Shemer Chinam, the Shemer the Sachir, uh, so, the Secher, and the and the leivah the shayel. so someone who watches says so the shema chinom is someone who's is is, is is hired to be a guardian but for free a volunteer shema sakir is someone who's hired by pay sakir sakir is someone who rents it pays rent for something that he has benefit from and a, and a shayel is someone who borrows something for no fee free Someone who watches for a paid fee, someone who watches for free as a favor, someone who rents, and someone who borrows. Since Hashem entrusted us to take care of the world for Him, which of the four guardians are we? So there's a beautiful sikh exactly about this from the Rebbe, based on Ashallah. And he says, the truth is that there's, this is a choice we make. It's four ways that we serve God in this world. Four attitudes, you can say. And we'll go from one extreme to the next. The Rechinom knows... My whole life is God's. I'm here only to serve God. So he's not getting paid. He's not having any benefit. He's here to protect and guard over God's world. So God protects over him, and that's why his responsibilities are a lot less than the others. A Haseich, Hashem is someone who's being paid. So he also knows that his idea, his job is to be a guardian. But he's also benefiting from it. Life is also some benefit for him. He's getting paid for it. So his responsibilities are greater. God says, I'll protect you as well. But you have some responsibilities. This doesn't mean the Shem Echirim doesn't have responsibilities. On the contrary. He's assumed all the responsibilities on himself. But we're talking about when there's a liability and something happens, God protects him more. Meaning he's not as liable. Then comes... The person that rents. So here, it's already about him. He's renting it. He's not here to protect someone else's property or object. It's for him. And he's ready to pay for it. Which means he understands that it's not his and he needs to pay. So now there's more self involved and less bitl telekus. So his responsibilities are greater. Liabilities are greater. And then comes the fourth. The fourth is completely a person who's like basically eating off the fat of the land. The world belongs to me. Yes, God created it. And I'm borrowing. I'm not paying for it. Basically, the one who's giving the least and taking the most. The shame on the other hand, is the opposite. His whole life is to be a guardian of God's world. And he doesn't get anything for it. Here he's getting everything he is watching over it because he's responsible and that's why his liabilities are the greatest. So it comes down to it. We have choices of how we're going to have our attitude and how much the self is involved and how much bitl there is in our Veda. That's briefly what the Rebbe says in a powerful sicha which you can be found in Likutei Sikhis. I don't remember where. I don't recall right now. But it's something you can look up easily if you do a search. Okay. Another question was asked in Parsha Mishpatim, is it significant that at the same time the U.S. Congress voted against a bill sending more money and aid to help Israel? In the Parsha, we read that Hashem promised to send special bees, the tzira, to sting our enemies in the eyes to protect us. What are these special bees, and should we be wearing goggles and eye protection so we don't accidentally get stuck? Okay, I don't know about the goggle part, but we'll say this. We're fighting a battle. We have to fight with everything we have. But we know we go also with God's powers and strengths. And there's no question that God will be with us and protect us. And yes, sting the enemy in their eyes. You can interpret it many, many ways. Physically, psychologically, emotionally. Confuse them. Shouldn't be able to see clearly. I mean, there's many ways to interpret it. So I'm not going to over-interpret over, over and say that what would happen exactly in Congress. That'll leave for people of, uh, who have more, I guess, prescient uh, visions. But there's no question that we read in the Pasha about enemies and battles, and we learn from it how Hashem helps and protects us. We need to do what we have to do, and Hashem in turn will do what he has to do. Okay. Next question. What can we learn from President Argentinian President Javier Milei's prayers at the Kotel? The President of Argentina Javier Milei went to Israel to pray for the release of the hostages, and miraculously, the next day, the Israeli Special Forces located and safely rescued, located and safely rescued two Argentinian-Israeli hostages in Gaza. Can Rabbi Jacobson please explain Javier Milei? I'm sorry. Can Rabbi Jacobson please ask Javier Malay to pray for my bank account? Okay, but seriously, what is it about the way Javier Malay prayed by the Kotel that merited an answer in less than 24 hours that we can emulate so we can also get fast, positive responses from Hashem for our needs? I don't even think Javier Malay is Jewish. So if we can copy his prayer and his kavana, we could probably get an answer in less than an hour. Well, being somewhat... Um, involved with a personal connection I will say this it's a uh, sincerity real pure unadulterated sincerity without any ears about it without any preparations just a natural love for God the words that he told me to kiss to hug the kaisel that's what he said I want to hug the kaisel I we don't know how Hashem responds to things, but one thing is for sure. When you come with um, God wants our hearts, our sincerity, our pure hearts, that is the simplest and most direct way to pierce the heavens themselves. The Ashguch of this is quite uh, extraordinary, that pun come to Israel, and that very day, I don't know if you know this, but that very day he visited the families of the Argentinian hostages. I think there were 13 total. Two already released earlier. There were 11 remaining and two they freed. Literally that day, Thursday late afternoon, in Salia, where the embassy, the Argentinian embassy is till now. I think it's being moved to Jerusalem. So he went to visit the families. And literally the next day, and then that night he went to the Kotel praying. And the next day, they were freed, yeah. So we can learn many things, the Hashgacha of it, the Kiddush Hashem of it, many, many lessons, which we'll discuss, I'm sure, as time passes. But here, regarding our situation, sincerity. He's not Jewish, and it doesn't matter. Hashem listens to all prayers. Beis Tfilah, the Kola the Beis Hamidosh is a house of prayer for all nations, including the wall, and indeed. May all our prayers be fulfilled quickly, expeditiously, and with the least amount of pain. Okay. Another fo- a follow-up, before we continue on, let's do a follow-up. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, this is about uh, Mayor Kahana. So how is the Rebbe's view different than Mayor Kahana? So, I spoke about this in previous programs. So i so writes it's the follow-up. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, I listened carefully to your response to the question of why the Rebbe didn't adopt Rabbi Kahana's view based on the verse in Numbers 33.55. But if you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, then those whom you leave over will be as spikes in your eyes and thorns in your sides, and they will harass you in the land in which you settle. Yeah. In truth, I couldn't make heads or tails of what your response was. Was it that the Rebbe wasn't willing to pressure the government to change their policy regarding the non-Jewish inhabitants? Certainly he was willing to push for me Yehudi. Why wasn't he willing to push in this matter? Certainly the Rebbe's approach wasn't to rely on experts. And since we have such a clear verse forewarning us of the misery that will unfold if we leave the Arabs in the land, why wasn't the Rebbe's approach very clear about removing them from our land? We clearly see the devastation wrought by keeping them in the land, which continues even now as terror attacks continue after October 7th, and not just from Gaza. Why would the Rebbe be off the record about this matter? Also, clearly, this situation is very different than immigrants who come to the USA and cause criminal mischief or worse. The Arabs in Israel Israel believe that with time they will kick us out of the land and, God forbid, make the Holocaust look like children's play, God forbid. Well, I'll elaborate a bit more to what I've said. I thought it was clear, but I accept if it wasn't clear, it's not clear. The Rebbe was not a politician. Rebbes was a ish emes, ish Why should I be another generation? Not coming to dictate policy of in the sense of what exactly you should do, not do. The Rebbe brought the Tater perspective, and it's a is a holy land. Simen Shin Hoftes tells us the laws when you're dealing with an enemy who's declared war against you. You have to always be alert and not give up one inch of territory that can be p'koach nefesh, unfortunately can lead to the the matter of life and death. The Rebbe didn't go into a policy. Mayor Kahana, I don't know if he was a politician for sure. I don't even put them in the same category. It's just that the question was asked to me. So what the Rebbe held? The Rebbe felt that you have to come strong. The Rebbe, God forbid, said many times that when you're strong, there'll be no war. And therefore, there will be no lives lost, not Jewish lives and not Arab lives, not Muslim lives. But you have to come with strength. You can't come with weakness. You can't behave like a loser. And the winner dictates the terms. That was the Rebbe's position. What the terms should be, that the Rebbe encouraged them to figure it out. But if you come from strength, you'll figure it out because either the Arabs won't want to live there because you're standing strong and you're not compromising to them. But if you start giving them, like a slow bleeding, here's another piece of land, here's this promise, that promise, that can only backfire. What to do instead? Once you're strong? I remember I was, I think I mentioned, I was in Israel in 1971 at Tav shalom at Aleph. a few years after the Six-Day War. You can go anywhere. I was not told, I was 14 years old. I, uh, nobody ever told me I, I went in Arab buses and Arab taxis. I went to heaven. I went to the Shashchem. I went to, to places that you, today by day you can't walk. I went by night. It was the same people. They still hated Jews, but they knew they lost the world, as the Rebbe said in a number of sikhos. It's Sikhs. Soldat. They trembled before an Israeli soldier. And then, unfortunately, they were given strength. Give were given power, they were told, no, here this belongs to you. Right after the Six Day War, I don't want to speak negatively now, It's not a good time for that. But just to make the point, they're ready to give the keys back to the mufti on the Temple Mount after they won the war, the Israelis did. That attitude can never work. What to do once you're strong? So maybe many Muslims or Arabs would move away because they don't want to be in a country like that. But once you give them, make them feel, think of what happened after World War II. If you think the Germans and the Nazis start feeling, you know what, I didn't really lose, what do you think would happen? And look what happened. Look what's happening now. So the Rebbe spoke the MSRP Taylor. What to do after that, that? Everybody has to figure out. Over the record, maybe, behind the scenes, the Rebbe may have suggested ideas. So I don't want to compare it. But Kahana was a politician. I'm not saying necessarily in a negative way. He had strong positions, and he had his ideas. He's entitled to state his ideas. I can't say whether the Rebbe disagreed. Maybe that was something the Rebbe deferred to. Let them figure it out. Let the experts figure it out. But what the Rebbe knew what you needed experts was the issue of p'koh nefesh. Not to give up land, not one inch of land. You ask a doctor, you ask the soldier, you ask the military, you don't ask politicians. Don't turn it into politics. It's life and death. That's the main focus here. So I think it's completely two different types of people, t- different roles. The Rebbe is a Rebbe. And Kahana was Kahana. As, as, as there were other opinions in Israel what to do. Strong opinions, weaker opinions. You could agree, disagree. I think the Rebbe weighed in on the primary things that were most important to establish. Be strong. Don't compromise when it comes to Pekuach Nefesh. And everything will, will, will fall into place. You don't have to You don't have to be apologetic and let the enemy think that they're equal to you because that always creates problems. Okay. So I want to continue part two of a question that came up in last week's program, which was, what should be our attitude to Zionism and to displaying the Israeli flag and singing Hatikvah? So what I addressed in the last program was primarily the different views on modern, secular Zionism. I'm using the word secular very loosely, but basically the modern Zionistic movement, the the World Zionist Congress, and um, that led from Theodor Herzl and the Zionists, that led to the Balfour Declaration, the League of Nations, and ultimately to the founding of the State of Israel, with the UN ratifying that in 1948 and the different views from one extreme to the next. Didn't go through every opinion, but generally we covered that to understand the theology behind it all. So there's a few questions obviously in that itself that we didn't finish, and some more, more practical questions today. The, one of the things that we addressed there was, is, that, is there a difference between before 1948 and after 1948? So the theological opposition was basically that a godless Israel is not, is not what, what's supposed to be. Now no one questions here, let's make this clear. The holiness of the land, Eretz HaKedosh, the promised land, that's throughout history, that cannot change. There's laws of Trumas and Mises and Shemitah, makes no difference whether 1948 or 1848 or, or, or 48 or the time of uh, the time of the Obviously the difference is in the time of Bais the Bais HaMikdash, but the Gdush HaSar does not change. Came, it remains holy. That's not what we're discussing. We're also not discussing the idea that Jews always gravitated to Eretz Yisrael, not just davening toward it. But we see individuals, daily Yisrael, the Shalom, the Ramban, the Ram, I mean, many, many. Many who ended up in Eretz Yisrael, many wanted to go, didn't end up going. So that's also not a question about living in Eretz Yisrael or wanting to be buried there or wanting to live there the rest part of your life. These questions about the mitzvah of Aliyah at Yisrael and Zman The issue here is establishing a state, establishing a mamshala a sovereign state under Jewish rule. And there, there were many opinions. Let's go from one extreme, the opinion that remains, unfortunately, by some, that still maintain it in the, in the most grotesque and, and, I would say, obscene manner, where they actually march with the enemy that the establishment of a state under Jewish rule is is forbidden. Based on the three oaths that the Jewish people received from God, there were three gimel shvurs, well actually one of them was for the goyim, that they should not oppress the Jews more than, it should should be moderate, their oppression. But the other two is that the Jews should not force themselves and they should not um, offend the the non-Jewish nations. So there's big debates about that in general, whether these Shavuos are applicable today. Some say it's agodeh and never was halach in the first place. I Meaning it's not a law, it's an agoda. It's a story. It doesn't mean it's not, it doesn't have merit, but it's not halach. Others say those oaths are no longer applicable because the goyim, they, 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 they transgressed their oath. Others say once the goyim agrees, agreed, then it's not applicable. I'm not going to go through every opinion. You can look this up and find all the different approaches. What I will say is this. From, a tera, from a, the Rebbe's approach, or Chabad approach, if you wish. So the Rebbe Rashad was adamantly against the establishment of the state before the fact. And of course, the Rebbe would have been the same thing. The Rebbe, the Fridike Rebbe, this is all one approach. And the reason, as I said, is much more than just the matter of the Shavuos. Because there you could say, maybe it's not halacha. But the idea of establishing a state as if it uh, has sacred value, absolutely not. So as long as they, could, they opposed it, because they opposed it, because it would not be a, a, a tater state. And a tater state is only possible when Mashiach comes. And ultimately, without that type of kein yankiv and takeiv that comes from tater and mitzvahs, which is really the foundation of Eretz So, in the first place, there'd be many problems. But that, again, you can discuss one way or the other. But then once it happened, meaning there was an establishment, so it's not even relevant here if it was the right thing that it should happen or not. Let's say it's not. But but Poyom Mamash it happens. And now you have thousands, if not millions of Jews. Today, it's became Yirbu, over 8 million Jews that need governance, that need utilities, that need... Protection, that need a military. So why is it different than any uh, community council, so to speak? Any group coming together to protect the Jewish interests in that area. Why is Eretz less than that? And even then, even the biggest adamant, anti-vehement, anti-so-called state of Israel did not stop from visiting or living in Eretz Because as I said, that's not, that's not what we're discussing here. So the approach would be, you don't have to give Memshal you have to give the state of Israel tether value, but, but value as a respected entity that's protecting the interests of the people, by all means. And trying to influence that government, and trying to influence the country to follow as much as possible tether law, absolutely. That's why when the Rebbe invoked Shimeon Shin Chavtas, he said very clearly, we're not talking about kedusha HaSaretz, we're talking here simply the laws that apply even in the even outside of Eretz even in France, in England, the United States, anywhere in the world. The same laws. The Rebbe actually invoked the same Shin tess in Crown Heights, that you can't just leave a community where there are Jews living because you put others in danger. In other words, there's laws when you're dealing with a dangerous situation with enemies around you, no matter where you are. It only adds the Eretz element to it. But adds some concept. And of course, influence the government to honor those laws. Because they make sense. You're dealing with an enemy. Look, we have a sworn enemy. And when the guard was let down, look what happened here, unfortunately. So it's simply basic common sense based on halacha. So that is not about giving this 1948 something spiritual happened. There are those that, ha- that feel something did happen. And they call it the beginning of gu'ula that Rebbe was adamantly opposed to. But to say, that it has no value for you. have to pay taxes, participate in the military, you participate with all the activities. That doesn't mean, however, you have to call it a Mashiach, Dike, Beis David type of rule. When Mashiach comes, Yamad Ishma, Beis Dovid from the House of David, who will continue the dynasty of kingship over Etz Yisrael. That's a tater thing. That will come when Mashiach comes. And that we don't have control over. Not with our will did we go into Gauls. Not with our will did we go out. That's up to Hashem. We can't force Hashem's hand. But that doesn't mean that in living, whether no matter whether it's small amount or large amount, which by the way is another explanation. Some say that the oath was only about going as a very large group, but not slowly. Slowly is how it happened at Tzizra. That too can be debated one way or the other, but the point here is we don't even have to go there because the value that we're giving to Etz Yisrael is the importance of it, its role, to protect Eden and to be a place that the more they're protected, the more when Mashiach does come, you have already the ground laid for a uh, peaceful country, a strong country, and Mashiach will take over from there. So that's just a little more context in the, in the opinions. Now, with that said, someone asked the question, how do we respond to the question whether we are Zionists? Very good. Very good. Let's address that. Jews that support Israel are called Zionists. But what does the word Zion mean? Is it the name of a region in Israel, or does it have another meaning? So, let's make this very clear. No matter what the Zionist Congress was called, no matter what they call themselves as Zionists, the word Zion and Zion proceeds long before the 19th century and long before the 18th century. It goes all the way back to tedeh. Right in the beginning of Yosha'i, we say it in Shabbos of tedeh. Zion will be redeemed I'm sorry, b'mishpah with tedeh. It will be redeemed with law and it's inhabitants through charity you find the Shema Nesla the idea of returning to Tzian and the word Tzian means a sign it's a sign of Hashem so this is a Teledika concept so of course we're all Zionists in that sense the true Zionists the Zion is connected to Tziyan, that the whole Eretz Israel is at Zion as a marker to represent, to be the bridge, between heaven and earth, a holy land. A land where today as well. God protects it from the beginning to the end of the year, all year round. So that sense, of course, we're Zionists. We're the real Zionists. There's a very powerful letter that ever writes to President Shazar, he was a he was a, named after the Alter Rebbe. He came from a family of Chassidim that rooted, rooted from the Sabbat Chassidim. He was close with the Rebbe. He came to the Rebbe several times as president before being president afterwards. So the Rebbe wrote him a letter once where he addressed him as being the president of Eretz Yisrael. So he writes back to the Rebbe, so to speak, with a complaint. He says, why are you causing me the discomfort of having to choose to be a chassid or to be a president. Why? You're calling me president of Eretz Israel, the land of Israel. My oath that I took, my oath for office, was president of Medina Israel, the, the, the state of Israel. And now, you're, since you're writing to me that, I have to choose now. Am I fulfilling my oath to the state of Israel or to the land of Israel, as you're calling it? So why are you forcing me whether I should be a chassid or, not, or, or be a president, essentially? So Nebuchadnezzar writes back to him, number one, you're a chassid long before I was born. How could I control whether you're a chassid or not? And number two, on the contrary, state of Israel is 1948. it's Israel goes back thousands of years. You're a president of a country that's here thousands of years. Think about that. If we attribute the, value, the connection of the Jewish people to the state of Israel in 1948, someone can come and say, and look at the UN, God forbid, I don't even want to mention it, but let's say the UN decides to vote and say, you know what, we're, we're taking Israel back from the Jewish people. Whatever we gave them in 1948 is gone. The, the, England will say the Balfour Declaration is no longer valid. But we're not, the on you, and it's just so was given to us by Hashem for the Rashi and the first Pesach Chumash. And that's critical to understand here. So, say Zionists, you want to know, we're Zionists that began long before 1898, or 1890, or 1870, or whatever it may be. Go back all the way to be the true Zionists. And what does it mean? Seeing that it's souls, our ways, our channel, that it's a triangle, a triad between the Jewish people and the Jewish land and the Jewish tere. Shlemah Sa'am, Shlemah ha'aretz, Shlemah Sa'tere. All go hand in hand, they need each other. And we dive in three times a day toward Eretz the center of our lives. And we never forget Yerushalayim. In every situation. In Eskech And so on. And how many times do we mention our prayers? On and on. L'shan Yerushalayim. We never forgot Eretz and Yerushalayim. And we will be redeemed and we will have Mashiach and we will return all of us there. The fact that so many Jews by is Beautiful. So we have to do everything to support the country on a very basic level because of the services that it provides. And you need a secure and safe country and let it thrive and be matzliach and also prepare the people for the coming of Mashiach when ultimately Eretz will be under the based of Beis David, yeah? Melech me Beis David. So another question following up this topic. So based on that, so then what is what is the response to the issue of, well, let me just read this. Why should we support the government of Israel if the Rebbe Rashab is very strongly anti-Zionist? So I think I explained the answer to that. We support the government of Israel, and the Rebbe Rashab would have supported it as well. We're supporting them, as I said, the services that they provide. It's a... It, it's a, a, a a major Jewish community council, if you wish. I don't mean to, that, to dismiss it. But it has all those values. And of course you support that. And what he was anti-Zionist, he was anti-the godlessness. And he st- would still be anti. But anti doesn't mean that you fight the fact that you have a, a state, you have a people, you're running, running as I say, services, a military. You can't be opposed to that. That's, there's people in danger if you oppose that, God forbid. So for sure he supports that and supports that. Let's bring God into the picture. Let's teach both people in the government, outside the government, the Jewish, the, the Israeli people should understand that is Yisrael, and Eretz Yisrael go hand in hand. So then now the question is, which I'll, I'll conclude with and continue. I see part three next week. So what should be our attitude to the Israeli flag and to the Israeli anthem? So based on what I said, you understand, these are symbols of the godlessness of Israel. They very adamantly did not put the name God into it. Tzuri Yisrael in Atikv, you don't have the name of God. So it's not just another anthem, who cares, you sing a song, you sing this song, that song. It's symbolic. And same thing with the flag. So what we're opposed if anyone is opposed, is not to the country of Israel, and it's not to the government of Israel, and it's not to the people of Israel. Certain symbols that represent that godlessness. However, this has to be done with discretion. This is not an opposition to the Jewish people that unite. You know, someone will say one second. There are young men fighting on the front lines and dying with a flag in their hands and singing hatikvah. That's why you have to also take this with a certain balance and we have some common sense. There's no Yarek V'al that says if someone sings a tikva or uses a flag, you have to be Meser nefesh like kila Arai, Shvichas domena and uh That's not the case. It's symbolic, so in the situation you try, you prefer, and that's why you'll find someone say, you know what, I don't, that's not what I see as symbolic. We want to know what I represent Eretz Israel. Eretz my supporter for Eretz all. I cry for Etz I will do everything possible to defend Etz Israel. I don't necessarily have to buy into every symbol. But to go fight against it, especially in a time of war, you have to be prudent. So here's what I would say. If you're running a Chabad house, so being that you're representing the Rebbe, the Rebbe wouldn't want the flag or would not have the nigan. Again, it's not against anything, it's just the symbolism, so it's best obviously you can't do that but independent of your opinion. On the other hand, if parents come in and say, I wanna sing atikvah with my children in the morning in school. So you could either go to war with them, or maybe you can explain to them, if you can, great. But if you can't, I would just say very practically, simply a common sense thing. You look the other way, let them do what they wanna do. It's not your policy. You're not coming out against it. You're not coming out for it. And whatever happens, happens. It's like people do a lot of things. People sitting around a table, they're singing a nigan. And the women begin to sing. You can start yelling at them and stop singing. You can maybe nicely suggest. Or if they sing, you just look the other way. Not everything has to become a war. And especially in sensitive times like this, when there's a war being fought. So communities come together. There's a rally or an event. Should you not go to an event because there may be an Israeli flag or they may sing a tigvah? Absolutely not. Your going does not say anything. Should you endorse the event by signing your name as a Chabad organization, you don't have to sign your name. Let it be a community event and you're participating. In other words, you have to have the fifth, fifth shulchan aruch, common sense, it's called. That's critical in all, in all of matters, especially when it comes to things like this, especially in a time like this. So I hope I was able to explain the nuance difference and I want to say again, this is not coming out a war against the Israeli flag or coming a war against Atikva. You too, You want to talk about what they represent. That's the symbols they represent. It was of a secular state as opposed to a Torah state, which is meant to happen when Mashiach comes. But again, that's not that's not from it's not in the other, in the category of three things you have to fight for to the death. And that's the key thing to distinguish between the two. A lot more to be said about all of this. And I want to answer some more questions, but time is limited. So let me just conclude with this. At the end of the day, there's a very big difference between things before they happen and after they happen. Just like we talk about tshuva. A person's not allowed to sin and then say, I'm going to do tshuva. That's not acceptable. And obviously, one should never transgress. And yet we still say that once someone transgressed there's the concept of tshuva. And not only that, you can elevate it and transform and even higher than They can't even stand in a place like that. So how do you explain it? Before and after. Even after the that the Rebbe says twice in Tanya, even that, you can even do tshuva on that transgression that you use tshuva that you use tshuva That too you can correct, but that takes a special extra tshuva. So before the fact, is one thing. After the fact, you have to look at the situation, what we have, and see what you can do to redeem it, and correct it as as best way possible. I think it's a vital, vital point in this whole picture. That still doesn't mean you change your position, your theological position. The theological position is that Mashiach, like the Rambam Paskins, Mashiach, Mebez David, will rise, and he will influence, he'll be Huger bet he'll be dedicated to Teter and he will influence others, and will fight battle. Yilchem HaChemash Hashem. That's Cheskos Mashiach, presumed to be Mashiach. Vim and if he wins the battle, and he rebuilds the Beis Amidish HaShlishi B'Mkeime, the third temple in its place, and Kabetz Yisrael, and gathers all the Jews to Eretz Yisrael, then you know Hashem has chosen his Mashiach Vada'y. He's certainly Mashiach. And and all the nations of the world are transformed. Then that we call the ultimate Zion. Ultimate Zion. The ultimate Abnuya will Where Yisholayim will be rebuilt with the Beis Amir Shashlishi. Now the fact that Yisholayim is right now a beautiful city. And many people living there. And, and there's a koisel and so on. Yeah, but it's still a koisel. It's not Beis Amir Shashlishi. So it's only going to add. Uh, add a whole new dimension. And then... And it's his soul will be ruled by Bez Dovid. That's a whole different reality. We don't want to compare what's now with Bez Dovid. That's not a crazy concept. That's why the Rebbe wrote to President Ben Svi of Israel. he didn't call him Hanossi. He said, why? Because Nossi, I reserved the Rebbe says from my youngest childhood, I used to imagine what Mashiach would be like. Nossi is Mashiach. So it's not in any way to, to denigrate or to limit your authority just the word nosi, Mashiach. That's a nosi. When you know what you're looking for. The Rebbe even said in his own work, Lehevel l'rik. Even though the Rebbe did such g'del and the neflois. Because relative to what Mashiach is, even kol ha but this world, including Matan teirah and tanoim, Amaroyim, and everything, is hevel hu lega b'teirosh Mashiach. Hevel. Like hollow, like empty. Compared to, because if you know what Mashiach is like, if you know what sin really is like, it's a whole different world. So why would I suffice and accept a certain symbol or technical things that are not what it's meant to be? It's compromising my standard. That, but I still support whatever is there, as I said before. That's the way we have to look at it. And we have to always be positive. Let's teach people what Zion really is. Let's teach people what Eretz really is, what the Eden are, what Yerushalayim is, Yerushalim, complete awe, complete reverence of God. What Eretz Yisrael, Sarih Seim HaLekim Li Reish, and all the interpretation of what Eretz is. So instead of being anti, no, we're just for more. We want a far bigger Eretz Yisrael, a far greater Eretz that goes back thousands of years, not just something that is here for a few years, and not subject to other people's opinions. It's the God that gave us this land. So with that attitude, we have also the Ge'in Yankiv and the positive, that's what we should be teaching people, the positive. I wouldn't get into a debate why we don't do this. I explained it here, because we need to understand its meaning. But that was the real opposite. That that Rabbi Rashab was not a kanoi against Israel. He was a, a kanoi for Mashiach and Gula. And he knew what the standard was. He, he saw the real light. So everything compared to that by him was, was not as inadequate. may even been a, a, a desecration. So, may we be Zechah by speaking about it, finally be to the first of all, the end of this whole darkness. Gulamit is Vashlema and soul. and the Binya Amidashash with Mashiach Zitkeno. This has been My Life, Chasidis Applied. We're here every Sunday, 8 to 9 p.m. Chasidisapplied.com. Thank you so much. This program is brought to you by My Life, Chasidis Applied. Please help us continue our programs. Make even a small contribution at chassidahsupply.com slash donate.